Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Freedom to Repair, taking on manufacturers and winning, I will be interviewing Liv Butler, Policy Associate for California's Against Waste, and Elizabeth Chamberlain, Director of Sustainability for iFixit. Liv Butler is a policy associate at the Sacramento-based environmental advocacy group Californians Against Waste. There she works on legislation related to extended producer responsibility and recycling issues. Elizabeth Chamberlain heads iFixit's advocacy work, supporting right-to-repair legislation around the globe and pushing for more repair in green electronic standards. The role blends her commitment to climate action, her love of technology, and her doctoral work in digital rhetoric. The right to repair our electronics or other materials sounds like, well, a no-brainer. But historically, manufacturers have said otherwise and fought with millions of dollars to stop legislation that allows consumers access to the resources to repair those items like cell phones, toasters, and even tractor trucks. On today's show, Right to Repair takes center stage with guests from iFixit and Californians Against Waste. From new legislation in California to the national and global movement and successes, we discuss how manufacturers are required to provide repair tools, parts, and manuals, and examine concerns around manufacturer compliance. Right to repair is an important element in combating planned obsolescence and empowers consumers and small businesses. Our guests provide a thought-provoking look at this intersection of environmentalism, economics, and consumer rights and access. You may even be surprised to learn that fixing your own items doesn't actually void the manufacturer's warranty. Well, we discussed this and much more. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, Freedom to Repair, taking on manufacturers and winning. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge. It is my honor to welcome our guests, Liv Butler, Policy Associate for Californians Against Waste, and Elizabeth Chamberlain, Director of Sustainability for iFixit. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, this is a very interesting topic. We've covered it before on Eco Justice Radio prior to having legislation passed in the state of California. And there's so much that's happened across the country, across the world, things that manufacturers are doing that, you know, since the last time we spoke, things that we need to remind our listeners about. But there's been some really great changes that have happened in the area of right to repair, things that the consumers are now going to be able to do, have have the right to, to fix their own devices. And we're going to jump into that. And we're also going to talk about what some of these big manufacturers are still doing, like Apple. Uh, but first, before we do that, Liz, I think it's important for us to define what is meant by right to repair. Can you define it for us? Yeah. So right to repair is the idea that you should be able to fix everything you own. That means you should be able to take your stuff to a repair shop of your choice, or if you want, you should be able to fix it yourself. And manufacturers shouldn't be able to limit your access to the materials that you need to fix your things. Clearly and succinctly uh, expressed. Thank you for that. And this is a question for both of you. To me, it sounds like right to a repair is a no-brainer, something that we all should be able to do to extend the life of our electronics plus to save all those precious resources and the impacts, the environmental and social justice impacts of them, right? What has been the opposition of right to repair legislation and what manufacturers, I mean, I, I mentioned Apple earlier, what manufacturers have been the biggest opponents? And maybe we'll start, Liz, Elizabeth, with you, and then uh, I'll get we'll get your take, Liv. Yeah, so 
repair is pretty lucrative, uh, both because when manufacturers have a monopoly, they can charge whatever prices they want and they can upsell you. They can push you to upgrade instead of repairing if they want. And so in every industry where we fought for right to repair, we see manufacturers trying to hold on to these repair monopolies and keep you coming back to their stores. So in electronics, it's Apple. Absolutely. It's all the major manufacturers, all the major electronics lobbying groups. Uh, in farm equipment, it's John Deere. It's Case New Holland. In medical devices, it's groups like Steris. So really anywhere that manufacturers have a monopoly on repair, which is in a surprising range of product categories, they try to hold on to those monopolies. And live. Yeah, I mean, Liz put it pretty succinctly, pretty well. Mostly industry. Industry is the one working both up front. You see them around the capital and behind the scenes to make sure that they can hold on to those repair monopolies. They don't want people fixing their own stuff because it is, you know, lucrative. As well as they they tend to say that there are privacy concerns that people will be able to, you know, see your data or you know, there are trade secrets that they are worried about being exposed by third-party repair technicians. But a lot of those people are people who are either previously trained by them and then go work at an independent shop or are not, you know, interested in selling that data or knowing or exposing it or even have access to it. So those are the, those are the opponents and, and their concerns. In relation to right to repair, I want to introduce the significance of your two organizations. We'll start with you, Elizabeth. You are the sustainability director for iFixit. What has iFixit done to supersede the oppositional roadblocks that disallow people from fixing their own devices? Yeah, so we've, we've been pushing for more repairable stuff for 20 years. We started in 2003 when our co-founder dropped a laptop off his dorm room bed. He broke the power plug. Uh, he had a soldering iron and he wanted to fix it, but he couldn't find any instructions. And so he and his dorm mate were pretty handy people. They took it apart themselves. They figured it out and they took pictures as they did it. And they put those pictures with instructions online and they immediately got interest from other people who'd had the same problem. who would wanted to fix Apple stuff, but couldn't do it. They had, I think, 30,000 views in the first weekend that they they put that stuff online. So from there, we became Apple's missing repair manual. We wrote guides for everything Apple's made. We started selling parts uh, and we expanded to a, a bunch of other products, a bunch of other kinds of things. And today we've got about 100,000 step-by-step repair guides for how to fix everything from toasters to tractors. And we push for more repairable stuff from a bunch of angles. So we're, we're working on right to repair legislation around the world. And in the last few years, we actually had manufacturers start to come to us and ask for help getting repair guides and parts and tools and documentation to people. So we are the official DIY repair partner for Google Pixel and Samsung Galaxy phones. And, and Liv, before you jump in, because I want to know about uh, California's Against Waste, I just want to mention to our listeners that we, we, we're we talking about a lot, you know, your your biggest interest probably is going to be that consumer electronics. But I know, Liz, you keep pick, talking about like a tractor or John Deere. And so I just want to tell the listeners, like, keep listening, because the fact that we can't even fix our own agricultural equipment also has a negative impact on us as consumers as well. And so just want to put that little earwig out there for everyone that's listening that we're going to really dive into that at, in, in addition. So Liv, you're the policy associate for Californians Against Waste. What is the role as a nonprofit uh, for Californians Against Waste for right to repair legislation? Yeah, we're one third of the co-sponsor coalition. And as an advocacy organization, we focus on statewide policy, but we're located and do a lot of our work in Sacramento. So much of right to repair for us is helping with the language of the bill and advocating for it in the capital community with our state senators and assembly members. And yeah, we, you know, it's a it's a team effort. So we also work to build out support with our co-sponsor groups, iFixit and CalPerg. And you do amazing work at the Capitol. So I, I greatly appreciate what y'all are doing and the fact that we have this piece of legislation that that recently passed. So this question before we get into that legislation so that people really understand the bigger picture of the importance of right to repair, this question's for both of you. Why is right to repair so important across the board from, from climate issues and pushing out, at back on planned obsolescence 
to supporting accessibility for everyone and, and also for supporting small businesses. And Liv, let's start with you. Why is right to repair so incredibly important? And, and in addition, if you mentioned planned obsolescence, can you please define that for us? Of course. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot here. So starting with planned obsolescence, that's a tactic that manufacturers use when they're designing their products, especially when it comes to our personal tech, where our devices really aren't built to last. Companies give our devices a sort of lifespan that's really impractical for the average consumer based on how much they've invested in that device. So it maximizes profits for the manufacturer as well, because you're invested in this churn of getting a new phone every two to three years, because you know your battery is not gonna hold a charge, or you know that when your camera is not working or your screen is cracked, it's just not really an option to repair it. So it creates kind of this fast tech and this notion that we don't have ownership over our own devices. And so, I mean, it hurts consumers and the environment because as we all know, the cost of a new phone or a new device really ranges from hundreds to thousands of dollars. And it also creates literal tons of e-waste that pollutes our environment. I think rights repair also touches on the digital divide. And that's the notion that the amount that we have to interact on a day-to-day basis with our technology isn't equitable for everyone. So giving people more options to repair their devices makes repair cost-effective. CalPerg is one of SB 244's sponsors, and they estimate that ensuring the right to repair can save just Californians $5.1 billion a year. So that means, you know, not constantly having to upgrade or take your phone exclusively to Apple or to, you know, the authorized repair technician, which is a very small pool of repair technicians. If you have water damage, if you crack your screen, if you have a camera issue, all all these are easy fixes and you should be able to fix them at a cost that works for you um, in a way that's equitable for more people. And then I guess the third thing I wanted to touch on is the environmental impact of our e-waste and how SB 244 minimizes that a little bit more. And that's kind of what brings Californians Against Waste to the table in the right to repair conversation. So as I mentioned before, we work a lot on end of life product management, waste management legislation, recycling, composting, things like that. And so e-waste is a huge contributor to our waste stream. And it's one of, if not the fastest growing waste streams that we have. I think we're up there with like fast fashion, e-waste are all competing for the number one spot and contributing to our waste stream. So while we have e-waste recycling here in California, the best way to manage a product that can be harmful at the end of its life is to source reduce. So that can look like producing less or extending the life of the thing that you already own. And then that kind of brings me to the second part of the e-waste and the climate impact of our technology, of our products with a lithium ion battery. There's a lot of energy that's required to mine the materials that go into that battery. There's a lot of water that is used when people are mining lithium, cobalt, uh, materials like that, that are in all of our devices. And all of that adds up. And another statistic from one of our co-sponsors, CalPerg, is that 86% of your smartphone's climate impact comes from the manufacturing process. So this all adds up both on the front and the back end. And that's kind of what brings California's Against Waste to to the table here. I was just making a note. It was that 86% of your climate impact comes from the manufacturing of your device. Yeah. In your, I mean, manufacturing, the mining, the assembly, the transportation, it's super carbon, carbon intensive. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I think because, and, and for some of our listeners know that I'm also in the waste industry for my day job. And I think as consumers, we're so used to seeing the downstream because that's what we see. We, we're, we're not on the, most of us, you know, we're not on the front lines. We're not in the area where they're mining material. So we don't see the impact and what we call in the upstream. We see the impact at the downstream. We see the product that's in front of us. And we say to ourselves, well, I'm told that I'm supposed to get rid of this product in a specific way, but 
And then some of us know how, some don't, right? And and so we see the physical impact in front of us, but we don't really consider what happened before we actually got the product. Elizabeth, what would you like to add to this conversation in regards to the importance of right to repair? Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is how important this is for small businesses and, and competition between small businesses and, and manufacturers. Uh, iFixit sells wholesale to independent repair shops. So we hear a lot about the troubles that they're having fixing things. And they really have been struggling with getting the parts, tools, and documentation that they need. And they're they're struggling to compete with manufacturers. We surveyed independent repair shops with CalPerg in California last year, and over half of them uh, 59% said that if right to repair doesn't pass, they might have to close their doors because of a lack of access to repair materials. Well, that's awful. <laughs> Jeez. So being able to create this competitive arena for for small repair, for, for small businesses to exist, right? And also to come to come into existence, I'm assuming as well, because with new legislation, which we're going to talk about here in a second, next question for you is, you know, new legislation has been passed. So in in passing this new legislation, we don't only hopefully I'm hoping knock on wood are not only supporting the, the fact that we are able to repair our material, but that we hopefully this will create more jobs, create more business to be able to come to California and and for that to also be able to ex- expand ap- across the United States and even, you know, Europe has their own right to repair legislation. And I know that there's right to repair legislation that's happening across the state. So I want to say to our speakers too, this isn't just about California, but what's happening in California. It's also happening in places like Colorado and New York and other places. We're going to speak to that, but also whatever happens in California is going to spread and allow other states to be able to step up and be able to allow people the same right to their electronics as, as Californians now have or will have in January. So recently, California State Governor Newsom signed off on that right to repair bill that I keep speaking to. It's Senate Bill 244 that forces manufacturers to provide the tools, the parts, and the documentation to support the repair of their equipment. And I want to dive into this, live. What is required under this piece of legislation and who were the major co-signatories on this win? Yeah, so SB 244 by Senator Susan Eggman requires the manufacturers of devices, tech devices, and large household appliances to make the parts, tools, and guides available to consumers and individual repair shops. That makes it so people can fix their stuff without having to either replace it or upgrade it or have the manufacturer as their only repair option. Um, Our co-sponsor group was three organizations, CalPerg, which is California Public Interest Research Group. They have a national presence as well and state-to-state presence. Californians Against Waste and iFixit. And each group kind of touches on a different part of the issue. So CalPerg comes at it primarily from a consumer protection standpoint. Californians Against Waste is looking at it from a climate and waste management perspective. And iFixit brings that kind of know-how, design, repair, and technical components. And Liz can speak more to that. And it's also important to note that Senator Eggman and her staff have worked really diligently on this for five years now. So it's great to see all that hard work pay off. Elizabeth, the timeline, is there anything that you want to add in regards to what we can expect? Yeah, I think one of the the most exciting things about the California bill and that, you know, that really makes it different from the the bills that have already passed in New York and Minnesota uh, is that it has a, a timeline for continued availability of materials for people. So products that cost between $50 and $99, materials have to be available for three years after they're manufactured. Um, And for products over $100, materials have to be available for seven years. So that really ensures that, you know, for a long time, you will continue to have access to the repair materials you need. And can you remind us of the start date on this? That when people are like, uh, is this supposed to be happening now or how far in the future is this this plan to start taking place? Yeah, the, the bill becomes effective July 1st, 2024, and it applies to products that were manufactured and sold in California after July 1st, 2021. So it looks back retroactively three years. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a quick break. So everyone stay tuned. 
we're going to talk, it doesn't, this doesn't apply to all devices. And so we're going to talk about what it does apply to. We'll talk about, you know, can manufacturers, what manufacturers are pushing back? Why are they pushing back? What Historically, what have they done? And, you know, I have, I'm a little apprehensive. I, you know, I'm wondering if some of these big manufacturers of our cell phones are going to try to like finagle their way around this bill. And is there any transparency and making sure that they actually do what they said they're, they're supposed to do? So everyone stay tuned and we'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org. You can check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of our interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Freedom to Repair, taking on manufacturers and winning. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and our guests are Liv Butler, Policy Associate for Californians Against Waste, and Elizabeth Chamberlain, Director of Sustainability for iFixit. Thank you, everyone. We are back to talk about right to repair. We were just speaking to this piece of legislation that passed in the state of California, which is Senate Bill 244, which I think is going to have major implications across the United States in the way that we're able to literally repair our devices and save resources. And But it doesn't apply to all devices, to all electronics. Liv, what kind of devices does this legislation apply to? And what does it not include when it comes to right to repair? So with California's new law, you have the right to repair your tech devices, like your phone, your tablet, your computer, as well as large household appliances like a dishwasher, but it doesn't include farm or agricultural equipment or construction equipment. So big, heavy duty stuff. You also can't repair medical devices, alarm systems, or game consoles under this law. Such an odd one. Why game consoles? I am not sure. Liz, do you want to speak to that? Yeah. The 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 basic problem is that the video game manufacturers have a big and very effective lobby, the Entertainment Software Alliance. Uh, there are some <laughs> some video game consoles that have paired parts. The, the motherboard and the optical drive, like the disk drive, are paired. And I think, you know, even though increasingly video game consoles don't have disk drives, they're, they're still really reluctant to give up that, that means of fighting piracy through hardware. So, uh, okay. yeah, <laughs> maybe in a future bill, hopefully in a future bill. Does it include countertop appliances? I do not think it does. So okay. your coffee maker, you might be out of luck. Oh, no. <laughs> well, all of you that you have your Keurig machines, you know, maybe go back to the reusable ones. <laughs> no more K-cups. So, okay. Liv, another question for you. Is there concern that the manufacturers might not comply with the California legislation and the right to repair, repair requirements? And if so, how does the state go about enforcement? And how do we know? Like, this is where my cynicism comes in. Working in the waste industry as long as I have, 16 plus years, and and right to repair situations coming on board in, in many different facets. And how do we know that the manufacturers are not going to be like, yeah, here is how you repair our item, but we are going to super glue the screws into place and make it impossible for you to actually fix the item, even if you have the instructions. Like, how do we control that control by the manufacturers? Of course, that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on because this doesn't apply to design. The law doesn't regulate how they design your devices. So that is definitely a concern. And right now, the enforcement of the bill is in the hands of California's Attorney General Rob Bonta. And his office has the power to find manufacturers who choose not to comply with SB 244. And under the bill or under the law, after the third day of non-compliance, the AG's office can find $5,000 per day, which starts to add up. I was doing a little quick math yesterday, and I think is a little over a million dollars a year. And so Liz might be able to speak to the design component and how to regulate or how it might not be possible to regulate that. Um, but something I do want to note is that 
Attorney General Bonta has expressed public support for the right to repair as a concept, and he's even gone as far to as to call on Congress to pass federal right to repair legislation. And Elizabeth, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, so we live is absolutely right. We haven't regulated design at all in right to repair laws in the U.S. so far, but they are starting to regulate design in some European legislation. And so, you know, I think the the combination of laws we're passing here and laws they're passing there together, hopefully, will make a, a more more fixable 2024. I think a lot of people are concerned with fixing their own electronics because they've been told that any repairs done not done by the manufacturer will result in voiding their warranty of their item. Is this true? And also in addition to that, under the new uh, law, could manufacturers force consumers to use certified repair shops? So the, this idea that repair will void your warranty if you go anywhere but the manufacturer, it's a, a really common and really dangerous misconception. It has actually been illegal to void a warranty for repair since 1975 because of this law called the Magnuson-Moss Warranty Act. So Magnuson-Moss says that when you provide a warranty, you can't condition it on requiring your customers to use your own repair services. So still, of course, if you break something while doing a repair or you know the, the independent repair shop you take it to breaks it while doing the repair, the manufacturer can refuse to warranty the particular part that was broken. But they can't just say, oh, you changed the battery, so we're not going to honor the warranty on your screen or vice versa. But of course, manufacturers aren't exactly eager to correct that misconception, and it is a wide misconception. Um, and a really bonkers <laughs> amount of manufacturers say somewhere in their documentation that, yes. that they will void your warranty. That is that is illegal. And if you find that in a manual somewhere, you can send it to the FTC. The FTC is starting to crack down on this. Federal Trade Commission. Yes, yes. And they're they're starting to, to find manufacturers who are telling people that independent repair and DIY repair will void a warranty because it can't. That's illegal. Fantastic. And and for people that don't know, you you can easily go online, find the Federal Trade Commission. They also have the Federal Trade Commission green guidelines about, you know, environmental claims, sustainability, environmental, social claims on a product. Those um, for a nerd like me is really interesting to read and they're they're upping them right. They're redoing them right now. Yeah. So yeah, turn them in, <laughs> Tell, turn, turn these false claims in for yeah, sure. So if you see one of those little stickers that says, you know, if you break this, you void your warranty, you can take a picture, send that to the FTC. They, they can't do that. Oh, wow. Dang. <laughs> the amount of stuff the manufacturers are allowed to get away with, even even if it is illegal. Uh, and, and, and most of us believe what we're being told, right? And makes you question everything. Uh, historically, what has been Apple? you know, our own iPads, you know, what has been Apple's position on right to repair? And that's for you, Elizabeth, because I know you you deal with this at the national level. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that was really sort of surprising about the California bill passing is that we did it with Apple's endorsement. They actually came to the negotiating table with us and uh, came out in support of the bill. And of course, that's that's big news because they've been fighting right to repair so hard. Last year, they spent over $300,000 in California alone fighting right to repair legislation, easily millions of dollars nationwide across the, the 30 states where we were fighting for bills. Uh, they fought it basically as hard and as long as they can. And they say, you know, their stuff is too dangerous for people to fix. They should be able to control the ecosystem. But meanwhile, they've been preparing to comply. So a couple of years ago, they introduced an ind independent repair program, allowing independent repair shops to buy parts from them. A lot of shops don't like the agreements. They say they're manipulative, but they're they're better than nothing. Um, and last year, they started selling parts for some products directly to consumers. So they've been sort of trialing these versions of what they would have to do if right to repair passed. So even while they've been fighting it, they've been getting ready for a world where right to repair is law. And I, I think they, uh, they saw it coming down the pike. They uh, came to the negotiating table. 
Yeah, because I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. You know, they they were so hard against it, not just in California, as you said, but nationally, they've just spent millions and millions of dollars. And now they're like, oh, we'll support this. And they're making it a little bit easier. I mean, this is skeptical. I, I, this is making an assumption here. But why do you think they're motivated? If, if you can answer that, like, why do you why do you think What's motivating them? I mean, do they just see the writing on the wall? Is this is there a bigger game plan to inhibit implementation? I mean, do you have thoughts on on that? I, I think seeing the writing on the wall is a big part of it. You know, similar laws already passed in New York and Minnesota. They knew that they were going to have to begin to comply with those laws. That's in January for New York and July for Minnesota. Um, and by coming to the negotiating table with us in California, they were able to help us develop a law that they could live with. And that, you know, that law doesn't go exactly as far as we would hope. You know, for instance, it 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 allows Apple to do this parts pairing thing where they. Oh, uh, yes. They, I wanted to ask. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, but Next uh, question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but, you know, I still it's it, the bill goes goes farther than any bill has before. And last week in a White House event, Apple came out in support of a, a nationwide right to repair law. And I, you know, I think we'll probably disagree with Apple about what exactly that law should look like, but it's great to have them at the negotiating table and great for them to be beyond the the position of fighting right to repair it tooth and nail. Oh, and that's the importance of both of your organizations, because just because you have a piece of legislation doesn't mean that that piece of legislation isn't milk toast. You know, it doesn't mean like, oh, we were supported right to repair. We're so great. Look at us. But it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't have any teeth, but we, we passed it, you know, it, it, and so having your two organizations to hold them to the fire to say, yeah, you did X, Y, and Z. We're, we're willing to negotiate on these elements, but we're not willing to let go on these certain things is so incredibly important um, because I am afraid that at a national level, they'll just water down the responsibility, but they'll be really happy at the fact that something was passed and they can put their name on it. And so that brings us to this parts pairing thing that Elizabeth, you had just mentioned, Liv, what is parts pairing? And can you talk about how Apple, as as mentioned, required parts pairing to be part of the right to repair legislation? It was a concession in it to, for this right to repair legislation to pass in California. Parts pairing is a way for manufacturers to make sure that you're not replacing or swapping out parts of their devices. So what they do is they serialize a part so it could be the battery or the screen, and they link it to that specific iPhone or you know tablet, iPad, whatever you want to call it. So when you do something like try and replace a cracked screen, you have to go through Apple or one of their authorized repair technicians um, in order for the repair to be deemed successful. So this makes it almost impossible for small repair shops to do necessary device repairs because the phone itself knows the technician is using a part that wasn't originally paired to the phone or isn't an Apple authorized part. And so you'll get a pop-up that doesn't go away or the phone won't update. It just stops working properly. And so when negotiating with Apple, there were several things that, you know, the groups went back and forth on. They wanted parts pairing. We wanted seven years retroactivity um, settled for three on most of the big devices over a hundred, a hundred dollars. So yeah, it is a negotiation. It is a conversation. Um, and yeah, they do want this bill to be the national model. As Liz mentioned um, a couple minutes ago, they look at California as something they can live with. They know that this is a movement that's gaining momentum and when people are calling on them, I think they need something that they can point to to say, we supported this. We were at the table. We were, we've had some of our needs met in this and we can live with this nationally. Yeah. It becomes their copy and paste. Right. And so if other cities or um, states are trying to pass the legislation, then it's that copy and paste and be like, this is what we're all right with. Where else has right to repair legislation passed or been introduced throughout the United States? And how does that differ from California? Because it has been passed in other states and it it does look uh, kind of drastically different depending on where you're at. It does. Elizabeth. Yeah, right to repair is really gaining a lot of momentum. And those laws have been introduced in over 30 different states and they've passed in four states, California included. Colorado has passed right to repair laws that come, cover farm equipment, 
powered wheelchairs and devices, and those have been done as separate bills. The powered wheelchair bill in Colorado was a bipartisan effort that brought both Democrats and Republicans to the table. New York has a right to repair bill, but there were some last minute concessions when it arrived at the governor's desk that weakened it a little bit. And then Minnesota also passed right to repair legislation earlier in the year, I want to say maybe March, April, and that really helped the California law gain momentum. And I think that the Minnesota law is the most similar to the California law because they both have those retroactivity clauses, which does give them some teeth. It's not something that you can kind of kick down the road. It's happening in, what is that, eight months. So and, and remind us just the retroactivity. We mentioned it at the top of the show, but what's the retroactivity clause? Of course. Yeah. So devices that manufacturers sell for 50 to $99 have seven years retroactivity. So you can access all the repair things that you need, a part guide manual for devices that go back that far. And then for devices over $100, it is three years. So July 1st, 2021, anything that was sold to you between 2021, 2024 going on and it'll. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I have to interrupt it. The, the seven years is is future looking, not not the retro the retroactivity is three years for everything. The 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 three years, seven years thing is for, for future looking. Yeah, okay, yes. I'm with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so both Minnesota and California have those retroactivity clauses. And then yeah, California's bill received bipartisan support. There were quite a few more conservative members that voted for it. And earlier in the legislative session, it passed off the Senate floor with 30 of the 40 California senators voting yes. So it's an issue that affects everyone. And you can really see that when it comes to vote counts, when it comes to how many states are introducing that legislation. And we have a couple minutes before going to the break. So I just wanted to ask Elizabeth, is there anything that you wanted to add in regards to some of the the legislation that's happening throughout uh, the United States and how that differs from California? Yeah, I mean, so I, I I think California's greatest strength is this this future looking piece of it that that things will be required to stay on the market that hasn't happened in other bills. Minnesota's bill is the the broadest; it applies to the widest range of things. So it's it it covers basically everything with a chip, with a a, a, a smaller range of exceptions than the the California bill has, but. Substantially, they're they're based on the same model legislation from the Repair Association, and the main goal is the same, to make parity between manufacturer-authorized shops and independent repair shops, make it possible for people to get the, the parts, tools, and documentation they need. And, and do you think that this is replicable? Like what's happening in Minnesota and California um, to other states? Do you think it's it's easy? It could be easy a copy and paste to be able to allow other states to push on this and and give that opportunity to their consumers. Definitely, yeah. Uh, other states are already beginning to think about their similar bills for next session and how to how to go further even. But I think also in a lot of cases, manufacturers will, in complying with the the laws in California and Minnesota and New York, they'll just make materials available to everyone, not just Californians. Uh, Apple has already said that they're planning to do this. It just it makes sense. It's it's easier than trying to you know to limit, especially things like repair documentation. You know, if you you'd have to put it online with a, a portal that checks people's zip code or something something crazy like that. So it's it's easier to just make materials available for everyone. So this bill is it's raised the floor for other states. We can keep asking for more things other places. That's fantastic. Well, we're going to take a break. Be right back to talk more about right to repair and what's been happening in Europe. You know, what I want to talk about agriculture and how this right to repair how it applies to agricultural devices and also medical devices and why this is so such an important topic that we should really have a vested interest in because it's going to affect us or someone that we know. I mean, we all eat and we all unfortunately need medical support. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. 
Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org. You can check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of our interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Freedom to Repair, taking on manufacturers and winning. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and our guests are Liv Butler, Policy Associate for Californians Against Waste, and Elizabeth Chamberlain, Director of Sustainability for iFixit. We are back talking about right to repair. Before the break, we were speaking to how the California legislation could affect other legislation in different states, how it could be copied and pasted, what's happening in Minnesota. I want to also know what's because the United States is not the only place that is having to deal with this issue, right? This is a global issue. Europe has passed some specific right to repair. They they also have things in the queue that they're working on. So let's focus on what's happening in Europe for a moment uh, as it pertains to right to repair and not even Europe. If, if things are happening in other places as well, internationally, let's speak to that as well. How how does that, what's happening internationally, compare to the United States and to California? What are they doing? Liz, if you want to start, start off the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So Europe has passed some actually really exciting legislation in the right to repair space. And we talked before about how the U.S. hasn't really regulated design. We we haven't been telling manufacturers to make more repairable products. We've just been telling them to make repair materials available. Europe Europe is bolder about telling people how to how to design things. So there are these eco design directives. There there are a whole series of them, and some of them cover right to repair and require manufacturers to make parts, tools, and documentation available. There are design directives currently covering appliances and yard equipment, and they're working on eco-design directives about smartphones and tablets. Um, They also, in Europe, the the European Union passed a a battery directive that will require manufacturers to design things with user-replaceable batteries. So, you know, you have to be able to change the battery yourself. And this is... uh, Go figure, right? That's a great one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, it's... it's, Every adult remembers the time when cell phones had a battery that you could replace with your thumbnail, right? Pop off the back cover, pop pop the battery out. Sometimes it would fall out when you dropped your phone on the ground. And we've just accepted in the last 10 years that phones don't do that anymore, that phones have a, a battery sealed in, which is kind of crazy because batteries have a limited cycle count. There's a a limited lifespan to a battery before it starts to degrade. And that lifespan is usually somewhere between 18 months and and three years. And most people want to keep their phones for longer than that, don't want to replace their phone at 18 months. So it's, it's awesome that in 2027, manufacturers are going to be required to make batteries user replaceable easily easily changeable by individuals in europe or across in the- in europe yeah. uh but you know similarly it, you know we'll see right how many manufacturers decide to make a a special europe only replaceable battery version of things but there's there's evidence that manufacturers will just comply across the board and for instance uh the european union also recently required that manufacturers make devices chargeable via USB-C. And manufacturers have started to comply with that around the world. So, you know, Apple has dropped their their lightning port and the, the newest version of the iPhone charges via USB-C. So I, I thought there was already 10 years ago, a piece of legislation passed in the United States. Maybe it was California. I don't know that that controlled the type of charging cable we had. Maybe it was on the back, the, 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 the wall element of the charging cable, but it didn't, it didn't specifically define the, the port into the actual device. And so, and I, I just remember there's being something like that. And then they were able to get around it by changing the port that, that the, the item that the port directly into the device could be their own thing. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know about a a wall charger legislation that could be the case. There there was a voluntary agreement in the EU that almost every manufacturer signed on to oh, okay. uh, to to charge via USB C a, about ten years ago. Okay, and that might be almost it. everybody. Almost everybody did it, but uh, one one. I was big more hopeful. Company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one big yeah. company. <laughs> yeah. Oh um, man. So that there is other stuff happening in Europe, not you know, not European Union wide. Uh, France passed a repairability labeling law. That's that's pretty cool. All consumer electronics in France have to have a score rating, how easy they are to fix, a scale of one to ten. There's no requirement for a specific score, but uh, consumers are using it to make decisions. So you know, almost immediately after it passed, Samsung did a survey, and the vast majority of of consumers had had heard about it and. It, Surprisingly, 80% of consumers said that they were willing to change from their favorite brand to a more repairable one if they, they saw a better repairability score. Oh, so, wow. And Samsung ran that test, ran, yeah, ran the yeah, survey. That was, that was a Samsung survey. Yeah. Wow. And Samsung was like, <laughs> I got you. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, manufacturers are seeing this so that they, you know, they're they're being pushed to make more repairable stuff, be, you know, because of this this repairability score. They they know that it's a it's something that consumers are using to make decisions. And Liv, I, 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 is there anything that you wanted to add to the conversation of what's happening internationally? Internationally, I'm not as well versed. I feel like California is my. Yes. Main... <laughs> But it is important. Repairability index is important. I would love to see that. I think I might have read this, Liz, correct me if I'm wrong, that they put it on the receipt and you just can look at it. I would love to, I don't know, buy something at Best Buy and look at the receipt and know that it's repairable. Yeah, I think it's at, at point of sale. So, you know, when you look at like the price tag at a, okay. a Best Buy or whatever the France equivalent of, of Best Buy is, uh, you, you know, next to the price tag, they've got got the repairability score. Would they say the reason why if it goes through the emissions control unit is because now it becomes an environmental quality issue? Exactly. And so they, is that, okay. And do you, yeah. is that the case though? I mean, are we looking at environmental qual quality issues or is that just an excuse? The argument is that farmers will soup up their tractors and, you know, overclock them or whatever the tractor equivalent of that is and, <laughs> you know, ma right. make them, make them emit, emit too many emissions. But I've talked to a lot of farmers. I don't know any of them that are doing that. I know a lot of them that have had broken broken tractors and not been able to fix them in the field when they've needed to. So it's, you know, if it is, if, if there is an emissions issue, they can control that. That's, you know, that's still illegal to, to soup up your tractor that way. And there, there are ways to pursue farmers who are, are doing that sort of thing, but they shouldn't be blocking repair that way. So one of the things I keep mentioning throughout this whole thing, uh, throughout our, our conversation today is the agricultural and the medical right to repair because it's it's just blows my mind that we don't have or that they don't have the ability to have secure right to repair of their own devices right on site when something breaks. And the California Senate Bill 244, the right to repair bill that we've been speaking to, only applies, as we said, to specific types of consumer electronics. It does not include any equipment that is related to agriculture. However, being able to repair on-site and quickly without having to contact an approved dealer is extremely important to farmers. Can you explain this further? And I know Colorado passed some legislation that allows farmers to fix their own equipment. Why is it so incredibly important that farmers are able to fix their equipment on site immediately? And what are they being told that they have to do instead? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, absolutely. Uh, Colorado passed the first ever agricultural right to repair bill this year. And so starting next year, uh, agricultural manufacturers are going to have to begin to make repair materials available. And it's it's a big deal you know, of course, not just for farmers, but for anyone who eats, which is all of us, right? It, we we care about agricultural yields being uh, being possible, <laughs> farmers being able to get stuff out of their fields. And if equipment breaks in the field, well, a harvest is happening. 
farmers need to be able to fix it right away. And, you know, yields, the crops will start to rot in the fields if they, they can't harvest them when, when harvest time happens. So farmers are, are experiencing a lot of the same problems that, you know, folks are experiencing in consumer electronics appliances. Manufacturers are restricting repair. And it's it's worse maybe even in agriculture because John Deere has over 50% of the, the agricultural equipment market. They've consolidated dealers so that a single dealership chain serves thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. And what that means is that if you need a repair uh, and you're a, you're a farmer, you have to call up your dealership chain and get on the repair queue. And that can be days or weeks or even months sometimes, which is totally unacceptable when you've got a crop in your field that's waiting to be harvested. The The way that this, this, the way that they do this, the, the sort of technical way that they do it is that any repair on a deer tractor that goes through the emissions control unit, which is most repairs it's a lot of a lot of um, almost all the sensors and so on go through the emissions control unit at some point so anything that goes through that unit requires a dealer to activate the part and you know requires them to send somebody out from the from the official authorized shop and this you know this is crazy for farmers who are do-it-yourself kind of people they're you know they they have the technical skills they've been working on tractors for their whole lives usually and you know it's 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 really incredibly frustrating to them to not be able to fix things themselves. And it, it has a huge impact. It can be really, really expensive to lose a yield. And then live one of the other uh, elements is the medical industry and, you know, not allowing right to repair on site for medical devices. This is not protected currently under the legislation, like to fix wheelchairs or to, you know, fix incubators or ventilators, you know, but like, I, I'd love to hear your opinion on the wheelchair situation because that blew my mind to, to realize that you could not fix a wheelchair. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it kind of hearing Liz talk about it, it's kind of similar to the agricultural issue because it is pressing. It's repairs that need to happen immediately so wheelchair right to repair allows people who use powered wheelchairs to fix them when a part breaks. It could be a battery, uh, the joystick. And the holdup is that, um, same with all right to repair, is that the manufacturer is the only entity that can fix the chair. So that's really limiting. It can create medical emergencies pretty quickly. And wheelchair users have to file a claim with the manufacturer who puts them on a wait list. So this can be days, weeks, maybe months for one of their own authorized technicians to come do a site visit and assess the repair that needs to be done. So a lot of times, um, based on some of the stories I've read, the visit isn't even to conduct the repair. It's to see what needs to be done. Sometimes repair technicians don't come with the, uh, the right tools, the right parts. And so people are going days, weeks without their powered wheelchairs, which for so many people is a daily necessity and can cause medical emergencies. There are lots of reports of understaffing technicians, not supplying them with the right parts, not training them to know what the right parts are to conduct proper quality repairs. And so there are technicians that can do these repairs, independent technicians that aren't manufacturer authorized, but they aren't allowed to. And a lot of times those technicians, you know, have a shop set up that is closer to people who are on the wait list than the technician that's coming out from or sent by the manufacturer and people in rural areas it's really hard to get people out there. And if the part's not right or it doesn't fit, then you know, you're back on the wait list waiting for someone to come back out when maybe you have someone who could fix it in your town or the town over. So it is an issue of dignity, quality of life. Powered wheelchairs are really expensive and they're supposed to last anywhere from three to 10 years. We did have legislation introduced, Senator Dodd introduced SB 271, which Californians Against Waste was supportive of, which would have allowed people who use wheelchairs to repair them. However, that was vetoed recently by Governor Newsom due to concerns over, I think, Medi-Cal. I'm not entirely sure what the specifics of those are, but it's something that's not in the bill, still left out. It seems to be needing separate legislation. And yeah, it's a quality of life issue. Yeah, I think Governor, Governor Newsom's veto is because it 
the the bill would have gone around the prior authorization system for Medi-Cal, so it would have complicated insurance billing. A right-to-repair-powered wheelchair bill did pass in Colorado last year, and they they got around the 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 insurance billing issue by passing a separate companion bill. Oh, that, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I'd love to try again with the, the right to repair powered wheelchair bill in California and, you know, do what we can to uh, address the, the billing issues. There's other issues with medical equipment, right? I, I think listeners might be surprised that hospitals are limited on fixing broken equipment from baby incubators to ventilators, which was so incredibly important during COVID. When we donate equipment to foreign countries, uh, they're limited since they don't have the resources and the information to fix the equipment. Liz, would you like to speak to this? We have a few minutes before we we close the this portion of the show and remind our listeners that we always continue the show over at ecojusticeradio.org. You can, you can find where we're continuing it. But Liv, yeah, Liz, would you like to, to add to this? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They're, as you said, baby incubators, ventilators, donated equipment, all kinds of medical equipment. People are having the same problems trying to fix and medical equipment manufacturers have similar kinds of monopolies and repair restrictions that keep people from doing those repairs. It's a little bit different in the the hospital industry and in that, you know, it's not patients or individual consumers that are trying to fix things. It's hospitals, on-site technicians and you know, often those folks have the know-how, they have the experience, they've worked on this equipment, they use this equipment all the time, but they don't have the the power to make repairs. Either, you know, they can't get parts or they don't have the information or, you know, in, in some cases there are software blocks that keep them from doing repairs. So, you know, we, we hear about this problem from hospital technicians around the world that, it, that are unable to fix the stuff they need. And this was, of course, a, a particularly big issue during the pandemic when there were way there was a way higher need for ventilators than we'd ever had before. And people were trying to fix every ventilator they possibly could. And so during the pandemic, iFixit started collecting repair manuals for hospital equipment. We we asked you know, any techs that had stuff to to start sending us sending us those PDFs. And interestingly, during the pandemic, manufacturers were fine with that and, you know, even sent us some things. Uh, but basically, as soon as the, the state of emergency was over, we started getting takedown notices and, you know, oh, suddenly it's the right. Suddenly this life saving stuff doesn't doesn't matter they, as much. Right? And we only have a couple of minutes to the break, but are they legally allowed to, to, to issue a statement to you to say, take that down? I mean, I, they can issue the statement, but right. do they have any <laughs> legal right to to make you take it down? So far, we have effectively fought all of those takedown notices. So we've we've worked with our our legal friends over at the at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and they've helped us fight those takedown notices. Great. So so and far, gonna, so good. <laughs> we're going to continue this conversation as we do always, and you can find that continued conversation, listener, at ecojusticeradio.org, because uh, I want to talk about the legality stuff that's happened. Like if anyone's ever been sued for you know fixing their own electronic or any, you know, have there been lawsuits from the manufacturers? Have there been lawsuits to the manufacturers? So we're going to, that's one question I really want to cover in that. But before we end the show today, I want people to be able to find both of your organizations. So Liv, uh, we'll start with you. Where can people keep up with right to repair legislation and the, and actions that are happening so they can take action and follow y'all's social media accounts um, for yourself, if you like, but definitely for your organization. Yeah, we are Californians Against Waste on all social media platforms. Our website is CAWRecycles with an S dot org. And we're at Californians Against Waste on Instagram and CAW Recycles on X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it these days. And Elizabeth, where can they find you? Uh, we are iFixit, I-F-I-X-I-T on all kinds of things, everything but YouTube. Uh, on YouTube, we are iFixit Yourself. I also want to plug the Repair Association, which is the the National Repair Trade Association that we've worked really closely with. They are at repair.org, and they have a tool for contacting your legislators. So if you're not in California, if you're in another state that hasn't yet passed right to repair legislation, go to repair.org, find your state, and there's a, a one-click contact your legislators tool there. Well, thank you both. This has been an interesting conversation, as always. 
And reminder to our audience, we're going to continue this conversation. So visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org to hear the extended version. Thank you to you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Liv Butler, Policy Associate for Californians Against Waste, and Elizabeth Chamberlain, Director of Sustainability for iFixit. And thank you always to our guests for joining us. This has been Freedom to Repair, taking on manufacturers and winning. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon or visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org. Please connect with us on social media. You can find us at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard, and you want others to be informed, then you know what to do. Subscribe, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a tax-deductible donation to the show. a project of SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste. The show can be found on KPFK, KPFT, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Executive producer, Jack Guy, producer and co-host, Jessica Aldridge, co-host, Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. <laughs> <laughs>